The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. Thanks for coming. You might have noticed the sign that Tim, our program host, put up where we've always had this etiquette, but we've never sort of done anything about it. So the way it works is if you come more than a couple minutes late, like five minutes late, we ask you to just do your practice out in the lobby or you can sit in the community room if it's not being used. And then just come in when you hear the bell ring. So we usually we sit for 35 minutes. And so now it's uh, 7.35. And that way the people who get here on time or at least within a few minutes late, then they get a chance to sit with a little less distraction. And then the other thing uh, that we try to do is uh, Brad and the crew who set up, they're usually done setting up in here about 10 at, or 20 minutes before, so like 7 or 6.40, I guess it would be. And so if you want to come early and sit, you can come in this room. So we keep this room pretty quiet for those 20 minutes or so before the program begins in case somebody wants to come a little earlier and get a longer sit-in. So just to keep the space in here nice and settled and if you want to chat, um, there's a bunch of leaders that create the tea time over in the community room. You can join them until the program begins. And then just another piece of uh, um, how the center works. Most of you know this, but for those who are new, we offer all the programs freely at the center, always have since we began in 1993. And the idea is we want the place to be acceptable or ac- accessible to all people regardless of whether they have money to take a class or come to a program. And uh, the idea then is not to feel guilty, not to feel like you have to donate, but just to participate and feel happiness because it's allowed, you know, the community makes this a free gift to everybody. And then at any time you feel like you want to give back, then you might volunteer your time or you just might have a lot of love and good wishes for the community or you might actually put some money in the bowl or you might set up an, you know, an ongoing donation every month, every quarter or every year, whatever makes sense or whatever works for you, basically. And in that way, you know, we are able to pay our office staff and support the livelihood of the teachers and have a beautiful building and have a nice retreat, a budding retreat farm out in western Wisconsin. Some of you have been at, and we're slowly developing it. Right now we have five bedrooms out there, but we're going to develop it so 15 people at a time can be out there on retreat. And then, who knows, down the road, maybe even a bigger place if there's enough support for that. So that's about $300,000 a year that just comes in because people want to contribute. And what we ask people is that when you do contribute, you check. And if it makes you happy, and you're probably doing the right thing. If you give and then you don't feel good, you might be giving too much or you may not be giving enough. So you have to give until it feels good. That's different than give until it hurts. Now sometimes, and those of you who've been around the last few weeks, we've been talking about generosity more generally as a theme in spiritual life. And sometimes when we give, it does hurt a little at first, but the aftertaste feels really good. So you have, to, you have to be reflective. It isn't like a superficial checking in. You're kind of sitting with it. Well, how did that feel? How, 
how does my relationship with my wife or my relationship with my mom or my relationship with my child or with this organization that I'm part of or with the wider community that I'm part of, how does that relationship feel? Does it feel like it has a lot of integrity, that it's in balance, that the circle of giving and receiving is really healthy? Or am I in a stingy, tight relationship there? Or am I too parental, feeling like I have to save everybody? I have to be the one, right? So we just have to learn how to not be burdened or imprisoned by all of our important relationships in life, like your relationship to common ground. Maybe that's not the most important relationship in your life, but, you know, some of us, it's a pretty important relationship, this spiritual community that we're part of. And it's important to check, not just once a year, but periodically, like, how does it feel, my relationship with this community, this place, these teachers, these teachings? How does it feel? Is it a cause for happiness for me, or do I feel guilty, or do I feel oppressed, or do I feel like I have to do everything and nobody else seems to be doing anything? Right? And, then, and then adapt and adjust and experiment until more and more, when you come here and you take a class, that makes you happy. When you contribute in any way that you contribute, that makes you happy. So the whole thing of giving and receiving makes you happy. And it's always worked well for us. So once a month, usually the last Sunday of the month, I or somebody else in the community gives a little three-minute, five-minute talk. So any of you who've been around for a couple of years and want to do it next month at the end of August, let me know. And we'll sort of set you up to do it one of the last Sundays in August. And just your own take on how you work with that circle of giving and receiving in your life, and specifically at Common Ground, so that people hear different voices about how it works in their life. So we're moving on from generosity, which we've talked about the last few weeks, onto, you know, usually in the West we might call it morality, but I actually like the word integrity. And it, in, in Buddhism, morality comes from the inside out. It isn't like from the outside, God or somebody tells us what's right and wrong. It's we actually feel it from the inside out. And it, it has to do like, so when we talk about something like a commitment to not harming other beings. It's not because we shouldn't harm other beings. That's what people tell us. But we've noticed directly, immediately in our experience, that when I act in a way that harms other beings, it doesn't feel good. And when I act in a way that protects, takes care of other beings, it feels good. So this is where we discover morality. I mean, it's nice to hear what other people think, but the whole way the Buddha set up the path, and this is interesting because, you know, the Buddha talks very clearly how seeking sense pleasures, although they're real, sense pleasures are real pleasures, right? I mean, isn't it true? We like some things in life. They feel good. You know, you get a good massage or you hang out with a good friend or you, you know, somebody tells a really good joke that doesn't, doesn't sort of put anybody down. Those things are nice, you know, to be part of that, to get to have a good laugh, a good bodily experience, have a nice meal. But it's limited. You know, we have it and then it isn't long before we need, we're interested in another nice sense experience and then another. So, 
Although sense experiences, sense pleasures are limited, they're nice, but we are interested in being more, we are interested in happiness. And there's a turning point where we seek happiness from a relatively ephemeral sense experience to we start to notice that it's even more pleasant. It's sort of funny to say it this way. It's more satisfying. It's more enlightening. It's more liberating to be independent, to be free of needing sense experiences than it is to have nice sense experiences. doesn't mean we don't want or don't appreciate nice sense experiences, but it's even nicer to not to need or setting our life up as being about getting nice sense experiences. And this is where morality fits in. Like we could go about life trying to protect ourselves from insecurity by having like a more substantial car. You know, you see these cars, you know, they get, and it's okay. I'm at, I, I feel attracted to having a bigger car too and bigger house, you know, and bigger wallet and, you know, everything more solid, more sort of resilient, you know, that you could drop your cell phone, you could throw it in a pool, could hit it with a hammer still. <laughs> and all these sort of things that we want. In clothes that are don't have to be ironed and breathe and so there's no end to these things. And we could live a life of getting our act together, get, accumulating all the products so that we can finally relax. I got it all. I'm safe. I'm healthy. When and I, I visited my wife who was on a, at a residency in uh, North Carolina all summer at Duke. And uh, the condo they put her up in had this little exercise room with all these amazing exercise things that I hadn't seen before. One, I mean, it looked like it was, I literally couldn't figure it out. And all these sort of things. <laughs> or I didn't have the patience to figure it out. But, you know, you could just, there's no end to like these Items that will just make our life work and we'll have it all. We'll be in shape and we'll have, you know, the perfect vegan diet and green smoothies and they'll be satisfying and healthy. And But that being dependent on everything being just right is a real prison. So, and here's the other thing about that approach to happiness is then I'm in competition with everybody, everything that's in the way of me getting all of that. Because we live in a world where there are limited resources. So me having all of that stuff that makes me happy means that other people don't have that stuff. Maybe they don't have enough. Maybe they're not even close. And, you know, we don't have to scratch very deep before we realize that in getting what I need, what I think I need to feel safe, has real implications for other people. Like even on the the level of, boy, you know, I'm not sure I feel comfortable with those people around me. I would prefer to live in a place where those people weren't because they seem different than me. I don't really get who they are. I don't really trust them because, you know, they're not my group whatever that is about, whether it's about race, 
We had a great uh, workshop today by Niels, uh, led by Niels Heyman, a former community member who now lives on the West Coast, um, on classism and Dharma. It's really good. You know, just looking at those markers of class and like who, where we sort of assign ourselves and who is in a different category. And we could do the same thing around race or culture. Even within Buddhism, you know, oh, you, you do that kind of practice. You, you know, it's like who's in and who's out. And so when we're in that mode of collecting safety, trying to be safe, we, it's pretty easy to justify harming others. Because others seem to be a threat to our safety, to our well-being. One teacher of mine says that when you think that another, that there's a conflict between your well-being and another's well-being, it probably means you don't understand what well-being is, what real well-being is. When we think that my well-being can arise at the, um, you know, affecting other, negatively affecting other people's well-being, that we have to somehow understand our well-being is interdependent. And this is the shift when we understand the true meaning of morality or this commitment to non-harming. It's not. It is a real gift I give to you, but it's a gift I give to myself first and foremost. When we commit, in the way it's said in, in Buddhism in the precepts, I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. It's one way to translate it. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Now, of course, we'll never fully live up to that, but that doesn't mean aiming in that direction, undertaking that training, isn't enlivening and liberating. And you see, it frees us, first and foremost, it frees us from this self-centered pursuit of safety. Now, we're not saying, I'm not going to take care of myself because I undertake the training to, you know, to refrain from harming living beings, which I'm a living being, so I'm not going to harm myself, but all living beings, right? So I'm going to take care of all living beings. And the question is, do we actually end up harming ourselves when we open that door? I mean, we do it already to a certain degree. It's like, oh yeah, me and my partner, me and my family, me and my extended family, me and my neighbors. You know, we we have these sort of circles that we sense these people are on the inside. But when we start looking at how it feels when we feel unsafe, when we feel threatened or insecure, well, that's how everybody, every single living being feels. Even little creatures. We get ants in our kitchen from time to time. And I was, like I mentioned, I was away. So when I came back, I don't know if you noticed them, Gabe, but they just came in. And, uh, you know, and I realized it's not easy. I mean, I always, I never, we never really directly killed them. But I noticed like in the past, especially when there was like many dozens of them, the way I would sweep them up or the way I'd collect them to bring them outside is just sort of being a little aggressive or a little impatient, more increasing the probability of harming some of them. And it's easy, you know, they're pretty fragile creatures. 
or sometimes we get these big centipedes in the bathtub looking for moisture, you know, and they're huge. Some of them, you know, two inches long. And it's easy to sort of harm one of their legs to catch them and get them outside. And uh, so I've just noticed over the years of trying not to harm, like, yeah, but I can be even a little bit more patient. And it feels so much better than to be afraid or to be rushing or be aggressive. Or how I use my language. This is another thing that's easy, you know, just the tone of my voice or like I have something to say in a meeting and sort of rushing in and saying it. It's like it's easy to step on toes. It's easy with the tone of our voice, with our energy, kind of a blustery energy. Or for other people with different personalities than mine, staying quiet when the moment is really asking us to speak up, to say what needs to be said. So when we commit to non-harming, we're kind of putting ourselves at the service of the whole universe and not just the service of this life. And then the interesting question, and this is an exploration for us, is that liberating? Is that enlivening to live that way, to move in that direction? living for the benefit of all beings, or undertaking the training to refrain from harming living beings. Is that a like a dead weight in your life? Does that make it difficult to have a fulfilling, meaningful existence? Or is it actually the direct way to happiness, to having meaningful existence? And the thing about trying to be safe is it gets more and more and more narrow, right? Because the more I'm concerned about threats, like the more, for just take one obvious thing, like financial security, the more I say, okay, I'm really here for the world, but let me get my financial act together and then I'll really be available to sort of show up and do what I can to make everybody, the whole world a better place. And so, okay, I'm going to pay attention to financial security. And the more I think about it, the more... Because now my mind is in that mode of fear. Like, well, how much money do I need? And what could happen? You know, and you start sort of looking at all the sort of structures of our financial system. And it's like, no, no, I need solid gold. No, but is gold going to do it, though? You know, because who's going to... No, no, I need the actual things. I need tools that I can barter when everything collapses, you know, and I need food that doesn't disintegrate. I mean, we can just get ourselves in a very tight place. Even even with that attitude, like, no, no, I'm really here for everybody, but I just need a little cushion. I just need that financial security so I can... No, I'm not saying, you know, certainly I haven't, emptied my bank account out and I haven't sort of given away everything. So I'm not saying that having, owning is bad. It's really a matter of how we're training the mind and where we think the real refuge is. So it's not so much about whether we have an IRA or a savings account for retirement or whatever. It's what is our attitude about that money? Do we think it's going to make us happy? Right? Or 
are we training in giving this life away? This life is here to bring something, to add something of real value. And there's different ways. You know, when we pick up some trash, that benefits all, all of us to some degree. You know, if we feed somebody, that takes care of them for that day. We set some wonderful nonprofit in motion, like let's say you've been really working hard to make Common Ground happen over the years. Well, there are a lot of reverberations, right? A lot of people benefit, have better lives. That affects the children and other people they interact with. That affects all the people, that those other people. And so there's some, oh, that's... But if we can cultivate uh, profound fearlessness, like if we can really change from the allegiance of safety, personal safety, to this allegiance of living for the benefit of all beings, or this powerful commitment to not harm, to be compassionate. Now that modeling and discovering that that itself is the happiness, the liberation that we actually seek, now that's a real gift. So in the Buddhist tradition, they say the gift of fearlessness, or you could say the gift of being awake, because being awake means to transcend greed, anger, and delusion, or fear. So sometimes, like in Theravada Buddhism, this lineage that Common Ground comes out of, the kind of Buddhism that's, that sort of centers the teaching center on the um, historic teachings of the Buddha, or the teachings of the historic Buddha, One of the words that's used as a synonym for awakening or liberation or enlightenment is the deathless. And it really points to not having a problem with birth and death. So, you know, death is like a symbol for not feeling safe. And so we seek immortality. And whether we seek that by having a really big car with like a huge chrome grill in front, that makes us feel somewhat invulnerable or we have like a big bank account or we have big muscles or lots of beauty or whatever youthfulness, whatever we think we have that gives us a sense of invulnerability or immortality or we can see the limitations of that and not have it pulled out of our grasping fingers but we give it away. So this, you know, that living a life where we're giving everything away, I mentioned last week, like when we pay our taxes, we could, I'm going to pay it because I don't want to go to jail. Or we could just give it away. Okay? May something good come from these tax dollars that I'm paying to the state, to the county, to the federal government. Me, this the energy of this money be a cause for happiness. May it increase, may it never end. May the ripple effects be great. Right? So we have, we're living from a different point of view of giving everything away. So even if we have money, we know that it's just a matter before I give it away. And some of it we give away to take care of ourselves, to feed ourselves, to shelter ourselves, to clothe ourselves. And some of it we give it away in other ways. And the biggest gift is this gift of fearlessness. And related to that is this gift of safety. Like, 
We've cultivated a heart that's not going to harm. And so we really trust this heart. Like, I know when I'm angry how to restrain myself from hitting or how to restrain myself from saying something just to hurt another person. And we pick that up in other people. Like, isn't it true that you know people that aren't going to act out in unskillful ways? They're not going to say something even if they're really upset. Like, you trust the integrity of their actions. So this is another powerful gift, this gift of safety that we give ourselves, this gift of integrity, and we give other people. It feels good knowing that I'm unlikely to act out in a really destructive way, self-destructive and causing harm for others. And in Buddhism, we'd actually train ourselves to notice how good that feels. In the same way we train ourselves to, like in those places where we still tend to leak and act out in unskillful ways, we train ourselves to notice, oh honey, be careful, because you're still, it's still possible for you to do that. Right? And so that, that wholesome concern and regret for the mistakes we've made in the past They exist in our mind as like this powerful force. It actually hurts, you know, that pain of remorse. But it's really useful. It's it's saying, don't do that again. That didn't work out very well. You know, you dated that person because you really attracted me. You know, you're already involved with this other person. What were you thinking? You know? So all these different ways that we justify because of some, it's that one orientation, right? We're, we're addicted. We think that happiness comes from a pleasant experience as opposed to thinking that happiness comes from taking care of everybody, being committed to non-harming or taking care of everybody. Like maybe that is better than pursuing pleasant sense experiences. Maybe when we go to bed at night, we have what in Buddhism we call the bliss of blamelessness. Like it feels really good. I got through the day. I didn't unnecessarily harm anybody. And that feels really good. I lived in a way, I earned my livelihood in a way that didn't harm anybody. It's like the Buddha gives a a simile for right livelihood, like how we earn our living as a bee collects pollen from a plant, it doesn't hurt the plant. So our livelihood should be done in a way that doesn't have ripple effects. Now, there's no end to this. Like we might think, oh yeah, I fit that. No, my livelihood fits that. But, you know, a lot of the reasons we think that is just because we haven't been thoughtful. Because we're all involved in creating or supporting the causes for suffering, we just have to reflect a little bit more deeply how we're part of these cycles. That the, you know, being, a lot of us have a, come from a place of privilege, or maybe all of us to some degree in some ways are privileged. And part of that experience of privilege is not feeling it's that important to really understand the roots of our privilege. And what the implications of our privilege are on other people. You know, I mean, we, it, sometimes it makes press about like our iPhones being built in a factory where 
the workers are not being treated very fairly, or you know the resources of the county or the city are skewed towards certain neighborhoods more than other neighborhoods, and we have the you know good fortune we were just smart about where we chose to live, right? So it's it's easy to be unaware. So when we commit to this training of non-harming, we're really committing to an ongoing reflection. It never ends. And it isn't about getting to some bar where my commitment to non-harming is good enough. Because if it's actually a cause for happiness, then the more we move along, the more sensitive we become, astute, sensitive we become, the more happy we'll be. Hey, Tim, as it gets a little darker, maybe turn the top two lights up a little. So we want to we wanna like really listen to how it is that we may be involved in causing harm. Not because we should, but because that's a way to be happier, to be more and more aware. So when the next person tells us about, you know, recycling or climate change or how people are being oppressed, or how you need to get involved in this movement. Like uh, some emails were going around just the other day, and one, you know, about um, purchasing, helping to purchase some signs, Black Lives Matter, for the local community here. You know, and it's like, it's so easy. And again, I think this is just coming from my place of privilege to sort of, well, it, yeah, people need to get involved in that issue. But somebody's got to pay for those signs, you know? It's like, maybe I should pay for those signs. And it felt so good to sort of feel responsible for, yeah, I want to do something because I recognize that there's harm. Like there's the residual harm that's just built into the culture. So how can we stay awake to that? Well, signs aren't going to necessarily fix the problem, but it can help kind of keep it in our consciousness. So yeah, I gave some money so that some signs could be printed so that people can put it out and we can remember. We can keep remembering to have this conversation, remembering that we're part of this problem so that we can better take care of everybody. So initially it actually hurts a little to take responsibility, but we break through that crust and then it starts to feel better because we don't realize how oppressive it is to be in denial or to be disconnected or to think it's somebody else's responsibility, you know, but not mine. So this is the interesting thing is to, if somebody forces us to do this, like guilts us and makes us have to get involved in something before we're ready, then it won't work well. We actually have to be interested in checking it out. What happens when I open my heart to this place in life that I have been unaware, unawake before? How does it feel? Do I feel better? And we have to be on the lookout for the shadow of feeling guilty. Like, just because we've been unaware doesn't mean we're bad. It just means we've been unaware. In the same way, just when we have greed or lust, doesn't mean we're bad. It just means that's the habit energy of the mind. Same with aversion. 
So we want to start opening these doors because we're interested enough that the that the that real happiness is the result of opening up in this way, not in seeking our own safety. Why seek something that we're not going to win at in the end? Who has safety in the end? Nobody. It's just you don't get safety in life. You get per- the perception or the delusion of safety, which only makes the a more rude awakening when you realize that you were never safe, you know, because things happen. And we don't know when brain cancer arises or the stock market crashes or, you know, whatever, the fire burns down the house or whatever happens. But something's going to happen, right? This life is built on impermanence. And so if we take up this commitment to non-harming, it actually gives the life, our lives, the meaning we've always been looking for. But we saw, you know, the conventional way to have meaning is to be safe. Either we pretend we're safe, or we're, we imagine we're working hard at safety. But with this other approach, you know, of compassion and connection and the heart opening little by little, right? Because we can't force it, as I said. Little by little, feeling more and more connected, naturally wanting to care, wanting to respond in bigger, deeper, ordinary ways. We start to, it's not that that gives us something, but it eliminates the neurotic, self-centered attempt to be safe in a way we can never be safe. It's like this great quote. Some of you know Helen Keller, um, who was uh, in the early 1900s um, born. Well, she was born a healthy child, but then as a, at a young age, I forget if she was like three or two, um, she had a fever. And um, then after the fever, couldn't speak, couldn't hear. I guess she was maybe too young to speak before but couldn't see or hear after the fever. And then uh, eventually um, had a teacher that helped her learn how to communicate and uh, became this great author and, you know, kind of uh, just a speaker and uh, cultural leader. But she has this wonderful line that you see around about how seeking security in life is an illusion doesn't exist for the child of man. I think she says the child of a human being, right? So it's just not in the works for us human beings, security. But that's what people seek. And then she goes, life is either a daring adventure or it's nothing. So in Buddhist practice, and I think it's not that uncommon in in other, it's also the same in other spiritual traditions, that a way of thinking of the alternative of seeking security is giving our life away. And then one of the trainings, like we do this in meditation practice, when we open to the breath coming in and the breath going out, or open to the sensations of the body, in those moments when the mind simply opens to the actual sensations of the breath going in or the actual 
experience of the body sitting, it drops its obsessive attention to like my story and what I need and what I'm afraid of and what am I going to do on Monday and what did I do on Saturday. All that has to be dropped. So that's a, that's a little flavor of putting down the devotion to safety, even with the breath. And then in terms of this ethical training, in Buddhism we call it sila, or integrity, or non-harming. In this training, the way that looks is we commit to living for the benefit of all beings, or we commit to undertaking the training to refrain from harming, knowing that there's no way to be a human being without harming other living beings. Even if you're a perfect vegan, just having to feed yourself is creating harm. You know, we participate in global warming, even if you're really careful, even if you're doing all the right things. So even though we won't get there, we commit to the training and we start to sense and to it how it's enlivening. It feels good to drop the obsessive attraction to safety and to give our life away. And you can do this just by raising a child you don't have to like uh, attempt to resolve the global issues of racism, sexism, classism, global warming, or other sort of oppressive systems. So you can act very locally, you can have, uh, act globally, but it's about giving our life away or dropping the obsession with safety and security. Or seeing that real safety arises in giving this life away. But we all have to find it, each of us in our own life situation, you know, with our circumstances. We have to find a way to give our life away. And it doesn't necessarily mean big changes in your life. It doesn't mean you have to sell your house or drop your partner. It's like, how would that generosity of the heart, that commitment to non-harming, how does it look in each of our life situations. And we have 15 minutes. It'd be nice just to reflect together. Of course, feel free to ask any questions about what I've talked about. And we'll come back to this in the weeks ahead. And before we continue, I wanted to mention one more thing about um, etiquette here. I know Danielle's coming back. But some people leave a little early during the conversation. And it's nice that we commit to staying to 8.30 on Sunday nights. And I, we usually never go more than three or four minutes after by, t- by the time the announcements are done. So it's just a nice sort of commitment that we're here for the hour and a half. Um, so anyway, it'd be nice to hear from some folks and questions or comments from your own life around this training and non-harming. And always use the mic and aim it right towards your mouth so everybody can hear. And anybody would like to start us off? And maybe, Tim, the light's a little brighter. Could you pass it behind you? Yes, so if we neglect ourselves, we're harming ourselves. But if we try to do things for ourselves, then we seek pleasures. How can we reconcile the two? But we can take care of ourselves with the attitude that here's a living being, right? And I'm attracted to having some food, or I'm attracted to having some entertainment, or I'd like a new shirt. And when that arises, then we want to be, we want to reflect, like, is this desire harmful to me or to other beings? You know, 
Is it going to be a support for my well-being and the well-being of others or not? And then why were we get it? And then after we've gotten it. So the commitment is this commitment to non-harming. It's a commitment to reflect. Is it causing harm to others? And we don't know, but we're going to continue, not just before, not just during, but even after it will come up. Oh yeah, what I did earlier today, what does that feel like? What's the reverberation that's left? What have I learned? And you'll look, you say, boy, that just feels good. I mean, every time I bring to mind, like even that simple example of giving a little money so that the organization in town can print some signs up. Every time that comes to mind, it's a nice feeling in my heart you know so so that tells me okay that was a nice way to spend some money because it feels good it makes me happy and you know i don't know what the reverberations are and maybe those people really you know aren't trustworthy people like they take the money and they're doing something else with it i don't really know i didn't take the time to really check it out but all i know is right now it feels good and that's part of that ongoing reflection. And at the same time, like, I have a lot of meetings, and sometimes after meetings I wonder, like, oh, how was that? And if I'll check with people. And then one of the things to do is, like, if we found, if there is a kind of a yucky feeling, it's good to talk about it with somebody you trust. Like, this happened. And it's not, it, partly it's a confession, you know, I said this and it doesn't feel good. And, it, and partly it's sort of like, is that yucky feeling I feel appropriate or am I just sort of being judgmental? Because it's not so easy. So what we really want is this active reflection. And the barometer is, how does it feel in the heart? Because like I said right at the beginning, the foundation of morality is internal, not external. But just because it's internal doesn't mean we have a finely tuned moral sensitivity. We have to develop it. We have to learn to respect that when we do something that causes harm, it hurts. Because most of us have been practicing distraction and superficiality. So people can do despicable things and not be aware that it hurts. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It just means their life is so distracted that they don't realize what that reverberation feels like in their heart. Yeah, thanks for speaking up. Other thoughts? You want to pass the mic over? Over here. Um, So the idea of not hurting anyone ever is like, it's really nice, but not everybody believes that. Like there are people who get pleasure out of hurting other people. And when that comes into conflict with you, how do you deal with that in a peaceful way? Yeah, well, we'll find out when that happens. And then the question is, to keep reflecting like as I was protecting myself from that person who was causing harm, you know, how does that feel? Or when I was protecting these other people from this person that was bent on causing harm, what does that feel like? And you might feel like really happy that you were able to save these people, but you might also feel like uh, like my hatred or my fear wasn't helpful. The action might have been helpful, but the fear was unnecessary or demeaning that person or not seeing that person's humanity like that person must be really suffering, really confused, 
if they think harming these people, like the person who just shot some people in, um, was it Texas just recently? Yeah. Oh, Louisiana, that's right. And then the other one in Colorado a number of years ago. You know, it's like, if we could do something, it would be nice to think that we would have done something, even if it could have threatened our own life. It would be nice if there were something for someone to do to have done it. But it would be even nicer to have done that action without missing a beat, like seeing that that person doesn't want to suffer. you know, And that person, to be doing what they're doing, must be really suffering, and to let that touch our heart. And at the same time, do whatever we can to stop it, even if it physically harms that person, or maybe, like if you're a police officer, shooting that person, killing that person, because that's what you're trained to do, to protect the community, even if it involves killing another person. So I think we need to have an open mind. I mean, I, I wouldn't want that job. I wouldn't want to be a police person in that situation. But um, but I'm, I totally get that to take care of all beings puts, puts us often in a situation that's ambiguous. That's just how it is. I mean, even like what kind of clothes we purchase. Should we do it from the United States? Should we do it from clothes that are built or put together in another place? We don't really know, but we have to operate in this ambiguous situation fearlessly. But if we keep reflecting, we'll get better at it. Willing to be sensitive, not to shut our mind off. Other thoughts from your own experiences or questions about non-harming? What have you learned? Right, We've all been in this world of harming and non-harming. So what have you learned? Yeah, Megan. Um, I guess I was thinking about just a few... I'm oh, sorry. Um, just kind of the topic of, of like learning from... Um, I think over the last couple of months, um, I think there's been a lot of times where I haven't intentionally harmed people, but there's been things that I've forgotten or things that I wasn't aware of. And at first it was like really hard for me to realize like, oh my gosh, I, you know, didn't order this test or I like maybe infected them with my stethoscope or, you know, things like that. Um, which, and I remember just like, like taking it really hard um, at first, but then just realizing like there's something to be learned from those experiences where we don't necessarily intend to harm someone, but we feel it afterwards and it changes our behavior or it just yeah. changes like, and I don't know, I've just been reflecting as like, oh, I was supposed to learn something with that rather than like taking it personally. Um, so that's what I was thinking about as we were talking. Yeah, and that's a really powerful teaching in Buddhism too about changing our, rela- our relationship to the pain of remorse, like seeing it as a teacher. I guess this is teaching me something and not to be afraid of that pain of remorse. In Buddhism, it's considered a positive energy when we have some remorse about a mistake we've made. We don't want to distract herself. It's like it's an enlivening force, not a deadening force. Thanks, Megan.
other thoughts that people have? What else comes to mind around this topic of non-harming? Sticky places in your life where you're trying to figure it out. Yeah, Tim. Thanks. Um, yeah, one thing I've been struggling with uh, for my job, I interact with a lot of people, a lot of volunteers specifically all over the country, and a lot of they're they're young people too. They're like high school and college age youth, and um, I'm really aware of the fact that. I mean, in order to do my job, I need to be in relationship with them. I mean, it's like a function of my work, and I really care about these people. How could I not? You know, we spend a lot of time together. I really invest in getting to know them. Um, but I'm also aware that there's like a there's a there's a limit to how many how many like beings can be in my life, and I can really commit time to and emotional energy to being present with, and really like be there when they're struggling and keep in touch with them, and you know all the all those little details that come up. Um, and so there's been like I've just been noticing this tension lately of like I want to be I want to protect myself I want to be I want to not harm this being right by presuming to like remember everybody's birthday and like be on call 24 hours a day when someone's boyfriend breaks up with them or whatever it is right but but also not wanting to like become dismissive of of, of anyone's life you know and and specifically not to have a disingenuous relationship because it's a it's a necessary transaction for my job. So that's, I don't know that I've really figured it out yet. I know that there's, I, maybe I've just kind of accepted there is going to be some tension there. That's never, I'm not going to like come up with the formula to get it right, but um, something that I've been reflecting on lately. Yeah. And it's kind of a more subtle version of what you were talking about. Um, and if we think we have to figure it out, then we kind of miss. So instead, we're just sensitive to it and we see what choices we make, like when we choose to take care of what we call taking care of ourselves so we don't immediately respond to text or we don't, you know, we let a couple days go by before we do some difficult emails because we just feel, I just need some space, right? But the key, I think, is to keep reflecting, knowing that we don't know that balance between caring for others, caring for ourselves. We just keep paying attention. So sometimes we might, and this is, you know, true for learning. We have to make the mistake at both ends, giving too much time away until we very clear this is too much or taking care of ourselves and excluding others until we really go, oh, no, this is too much. I can give more. And so we have to keep making mistakes at both ends until we seem to find that place where we come alive. And this is the same with the generosity I was saying at the beginning. Like, how do we know how much money we should be giving to common ground? Well, you might need to make some mistakes. Like, well, I can take it. No one's going to know. I'm, I'm not going to give any money, you know. And then it may be two years. I've been coming to this place for two years, and it doesn't feel good that I haven't given any money. So I'm going to do something. And you go, oh, that actually feels good. And then after a while, it's like you've given away too much, and you, you can't take care of your other responsibilities. And you go, wait a minute. So we have to sort of explore. And I think that's the point. Not thinking we know how to practice non-harming, but willing to take it up. As Megan was saying, like as a teacher, okay, let's just see what that would look like. Now, how does how does this look? Beating myself up about, you know, making a mistake, but this, no, that doesn't feel good. Or being not caring, oh, you don't need to worry about that, everybody makes mistakes, but that doesn't feel good either, being nonchalant about it. 
So this is the thing about the whole path that the Buddha taught. It has to be moment to moment. And this is, it's scary because when we take up this training in non-harming, what we'd really like is, okay, if you don't hit, you're there. Okay, I'm there. I don't need to think about it. But the way the Buddha teaches, no, I'm, I, I want you to do a training that you'll never be done with and requires moment to moment participation. Like we're always reflecting about how we are. Like even now, like even as you walk out in a few minutes, you could cause harm. There may be somebody you've connected with just briefly here at the center and they're just sort of in your peripheral vision, but you don't acknowledge them. And that could be just a little stab in that person. Or you might be really grounded in your experience of your body and you might more likely intuit, oh, that person seems to want to be connected with. And you smile, you know, you just say hi to them. That may be it. But that could be a little way of taking care of another human being. That if we're not sensitive, we'll just miss. I think we have time for one more. If anybody else has a thought they'd like to share with the group, they come to mind in this area of non-harming. That, yeah, thanks. Hi. Um, I work for a corporation, and I kind of spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the decisions that I don't have control over that may or may not be something that I agree with. But then I do my best in my job as I can And yet I still seem to always have like a level of guilt because, you know, maybe I'm not super down with capitalism and, but I feel like there's all these, you know, this continuum of having to participate in a society that you didn't create. So I was wondering what you could say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to reflect deeply about our livelihood and, uh, we have to also take the long view of things. And one of the things that we have to appreciate the power of is how just one person's attitude has ripple effects. So even while you're figuring out, one, whether you have other employment options, two, understanding more clearly kind of <coughs> excuse me, how people might be being harmed, by the activities of this corporation and the sense of your involvement in that and whether you the heart would feel lighter, better if you were doing some other kind of work. So even as you figure out those sort of ambiguous, difficult things to figure out, you can be a radical, right? So you can be radically committed to living for the benefit of all beings in your job and how you relate to other people and how you show up as a human being, and the values in your mind. Because we're all in that boat. I mean, even those of us who aren't working for a large corporation that you know, is profit-oriented and maybe is even involved in products that are harming other people, like a tobacco industry or something like that. But all of, the, all of us, we're citizens, or most of us are citizens of the United States. Right? Well, the United States is involved in a lot of not-so-good activities around the world and within our own country. You know, so we're all participating in these institutions and these cultural structures that are causing harm. So if we de- demand perfection, 
it's, it's its own kind of violence. The question is, how, just right now, what can I do? And it doesn't mean you give up reflecting about, is there another job? Is there a way I can uh, act to change what the corporation's doing? But even before those sort of more substantial actions, you can be transforming your own mind and heart so that you're showing up with different values. Not like seeking security, but living for the benefit of others. And that doesn't exclude earning a living. But how you relate to that living you're earning, the money that you're earning, and what you're doing with those resources, and what you're setting in motion around you. So we probably have to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and just time for one or two breaths. So wishing each of us real happiness as we uncover how to live with this commitment to not harming. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. And a couple important announcements. I'll do a few, and then Tim has a few. But uh, we've invited Arena Weissman, a well-known teacher from the West Coast, who's uh, taught at Spirit Rock for a number of years and IMS in Massachusetts, two of the main retreat centers in this lineage of Buddhist practice. And uh, we've invited her here to do a workshop specifically for people who identify as white, a white person, about the intersection of our Dharma practice and opening and under better understanding the experience of white privilege. So that, and it's actually right in the sort of topic that we've been talking about tonight, so that we can live with this commitment to not harming, really understanding some of the roots of suffering in our culture and our society. So we're encouraging people to sign up for that. So it's Saturday, uh, 9.30 to 4, the 22nd of August. And you can sign up under the bulletin board for that. She's just giving a Dharma talk. Everybody's invited to that on Friday night. She's a wonderful teacher. Really encourage people to come to that. It's, I think it's called In the Do of Simple Things. The mind is refreshed. Nice topic. So that's Friday night Dharma talk, 7 to 9. Day-long workshop for people who identify as a white person on Saturday. And then on Sunday, uh, yeah, Sunday afternoon, she's giving uh, or leading a community conversation with Meski, who's a longtime community leader in our community here. Um, Meski was one of the facilitators for the Inclusivity Circle and is on the advisory group that advises me and other leaders at the center and uh, is also one of the leaders for the People of Color group that meets um, every month, every other week actually, here at the center. So she'll be collaborating with Arena Weissman on Sunday afternoon to just talk more generally. Everyone's invited to that Sunday afternoon discussion about difference and, and how we use our practice to relate to those who are different than us and how we can be free living in a world where there are differences instead of being afraid or tight about it. So keep that in mind. And then Tim has a few other announcements for us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Just really quickly, a few things coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.